This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from. It's Friday. It's episode 473 of IAQ Radio, August 18th, 2017. The Z-Man and I are on our annual August break, but we have gone through the archives to edit and remix some of our favorite shows. This week, we're going to flash back to a show we did with Dry East founder and disaster restoration pioneer, Claude Blackburn. This is one of the Z-Man's favorite shows, and we're happy to have it in the archives. We return live next week when our guest will be Dr. Powell Wargaki. In the meantime, we hope you catch up on some of our old shows and listen in to chat with others. Let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. We also have continuing education credits available for the IAQ Radio program. Just listen to the show, go online, answer a few questions, and we'll print you out a certificate. So let's turn it over and uh, listen to this great show we had with Mr. Claude Blackburn. Well, Claude, let's start out with your educational background. Uh, you know, did where did you go to graduate school? You know, where did you go to college? <laughs> Well, that's a great question, Cliff, and uh, I think, as you know, I never really went to college. And in fact, I never really finished high school. I, I left home when I was 16 and tried living in my car for a couple of weeks, and after two weeks of that, I dropped out of school, and that was the end of my formal education. Okay. But, you know, I can say that, that one of the things that I did every day for all my career while I was working was read business books and try to improve the, uh, my education through reading, and that was the big source of learning for me well i i understand that the first uh i guess relation to disaster uh, restoration and cleaning was you started a carpet cleaning business how did you get started in the carpet cleaning business well in uh in 1970 my mother started a little carpet cleaning business in everett and uh, a guy that i knew and we both knew it had uh got her started and the same guy offered me the same deal where he would he would front me a dry foam carpet cleaning machine, a Zep dry foam carpet cleaning machine and a Zep vacuum cleaner. And uh, I, I headed for Bellingham, Washington, which was north of there, about 60 miles north and was intent on setting my business up there, but ended up in Mount Vernon because someone would rent me a house for $35. Whoa. They had uh, started knocking on doors in October 1971, asking people if I could clean their carpets. Hmm. And what, 
Go ahead, Cliff. No, you know, I, I think everyone in the industry is certainly familiar, uh, you know, with the successful uh, business exit that you had uh, when you successfully sold your business. Uh, and, you know, that was probably the highlight. You know, what I'd like to talk about is what was the lowest point in your business career? Well, yeah, there are lots of low points, Cliff. And uh, one of the earliest low points, actually, I just moved up to Skagit County. I was 19 years old. I had two kids, a young wife. I didn't really have an income. And we were really hurting. I mean, they were shutting off our electricity. That next month they shut off something else, and and uh, really we didn't have enough food to eat. So I thought, well, I've got to do something. I'm going to go down and sign up for. I'm going to go up down and sign up for welfare. So I went down to the welfare board and and went in the door, and uh, the guy said, well, well, you need to. You, you're in business. You've got to create a financial statement or balance sheet. And I said, well, what's a balance sheet? I didn't have any idea what a balance sheet was. And he said, well. One side of the piece of paper, you put everything you own, and on the other side of the paper, you put everything you owe. And, and I went back with that uh, piece of paper, that balance sheet, the next day, trying to sign up for some food stamps and welfare. And the guy looked at that, and he said, well, heck, you've got, you've got equipment here. You've got to sell that equipment before we can give you welfare. Wow. And that's the last time I ever went back to uh, the welfare office. But that was a pretty big turning point when I realized it was really all the bridges there were no bridges to go backwards on. I had to go forwards. And so that just drove me harder to make a living in the carpet cleaning business. That was pretty low at that point when they said you couldn't get any help. Wow, I'll say. Now, how did you go from there into uh, the water damage restoration business? Was that just a natural thing to move into? Well, in 1973, uh, a guy fed me a, a steam machine, a Mr. Steam Model 44, yeah, that was just kind of when steam cleaning was just coming in. This was a fiberglass uh, carpet steam machine with a big old heavy drag tool, probably weighed 70 pounds. Anyway, he had he had uh, given me this machine on credit, and it was a, you know, in those days, that was considered a powerful machine. I mean, that could really suck some water. And knowing that, I just started letting people know that I could uh, I could extract water if they had if they had a water intrusion, didn't use the word water intrusion back in those days, but abnormal water intrusion into their buildings, I could suck the water. And, uh, well, my first job was actually something like it was an apartment complex, 11 units that got flooded. And uh, we went in there and sucked all the water out. And uh, after we sucked all the water out, we were told by the insurance guy where we had to pull all the carpet out. And we pulled all that carpet out of there. We cut all the seams, uh, pulled it out of the building, cut out all the pad, uh, got rid of the pad. And uh, a few weeks later after we dried it, we took it down to Ace Cartosian, got the, this, this wall-to-wall carpet all cleaned in a rug cleaning plant. Of course, it shrunk like the Dickens. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then we went to put it back in, and uh, it didn't fit too well. We managed to stretch it in, managed to get it in place, but kind of realized, well, maybe that wasn't the way to deal with water damage restoration. And about that time, uh, and I don't know the exact timing, but Lloyd Weaver, I'd gone to a Carpet Cleaning Institute trade show. I ran into Lloyd Weaver, and he's promoting the concept of, of on-location drying. So I think I bought a couple of ported dryers from Lloyd, and we started doing a lot of uh, on-site drying in those days. And luckily, we also had the Skagit River. We still have the Skagit River out this way, and every few years it would flood, and we'd get, we'd always get a few homes flooded, sometimes as many as 50 flooded. 
and we were called in. We started learning how to restore buildings that had anywhere from a couple of inches of water to four feet of standing water inside of them. So we learned a lot of lessons in a practical way. Claude, what was your motivation to start Dryies, and what were the first products? Well, the very first product, well, the motivation to start the company, well, well really it was, the first product was Easy Blocks. And the way I came up with Easy Blocks, I was just in my, I was working on my home that at that time, and I'd run out of wood blocks back in those days, all carpet cleaners used, little two-inch by two-inch by three-quarter-inch wooden blocks placed underneath uh, flat-based furniture. After we would move the furniture out from the wall, we'd clean behind it, of course, and then uh, put the furniture back and use these wood blocks. <laughs> well, that day I was out of uh, wood blocks, and uh, just when I was thinking, what am I going to do now? I've got a bunch of jobs going on today. Here comes a UPS driver. Well, there was a package, and I'm opening the package to see what's inside of it, and there was foam inside of it. And I thought, well, heck, why not cut up that foam and make blocks today, which I did. I cut it with a saw, and of course it's ridiculous. You know, I had foam pieces all over, but I got through that day. And it just dawned on me at that time that foam could be a lot better than wood because it would indent a little bit, and it would it was be lighter to ship and so on. So we developed a a process of cutting foam, packaging foam blocks for the carpeting and industry. And so we were direct mailing the United States. We got a list of stick code 7217 professional carpet cleaners, mailed every carpet cleaner in the United States a sample box, and uh, we got a lot of orders from that. The SIC and, code, did you, is that what you said? Yes, SIC code 7217 professional carpet upholstery cleaners. There was about 24,000 at that time. Wow. And uh, so here I am selling foam blocks, and I'm thinking, well, someone else is going to knock this off. I mean, this this doesn't make sense just to sell one product. And even though we were getting, I'd, I'd open the mailbox to be stacks of checks in the mailbox for like $26. So it was a very successful little business selling these foam blocks. And at that time, it was actually being sold under Claude's carpet here in 1978. But by 1980, I thought, well, we just can't keep doing this. There's going to be a bunch of knockoffs. And what else do I know anything about? You know, what else could I sell? And really consciously trying to think, what could I possibly do? And the only thing I really felt I knew anything about was water damage restoration. About 50% of my net profits were coming from water damage by that time. And uh, we uh, created a, an air mover. And... Uh, on one side of the flyer would be the air mover. It's called the Hydro Dryer 1. It's basically just a metal air mover. It has a little quarter horsepower shaded pull motor. And uh, we put that on one side of the flyer. We put the easy blocks on the other one. And that was, and we started the company Dry East Products. And with the intent, intent of that company was to really sell and focus on drying technology. So that was the beginning of Dry East. Well, I've got a two-part question for you. I guess the first part is how original must an idea be in order to be successful? And the second part, in your opinion, what's more important, the idea or the execution of the idea? Well, that's a good question. And, and of course, everybody has different beliefs about that. I know a lot of people feel that ideas are important. But one thing I learned over the years, for me anyway, and at Dry's Products, was we had lots of ideas. 
as the company grew, we had more and more employees. We empowered the people. People would come to us with their ideas. Uh, customers came to us with ideas. Distributors came to us with ideas. To me, there were lots of ideas, thousands of ideas. I had my own ideas. The biggest issue I, I had was really was execution. How do you take an idea and convert it to something that serves people and makes money? And so I'm, I'm pretty strong on feeling it's all about execution. And uh, one of the stories I tell is that uh, it kind of highlights that. One day I'm standing in the line at a convention, the lunch line I think it was, and a guy comes up to me, and he's, a, he's, a, he's in the cleaning and restoration business, and he says to me, he says, oh, i got an idea. It's worth a lot of money. I mean, it's worth a fortune. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. And I said, well, what's the idea? Well, Quan, I can't tell you what the idea is. <laughs> How much? Because then you take it. How much would you pay me for it? I said, well, I can't tell you what I'd pay you for the idea unless you tell me what it is. I can't tell you what it is because you'll take it. <laughs> you, know, you kind of go around and around, and, and later on I had a little talk with him. I said, you know, there's lots of ideas. It's all about execution. Just, just go ahead and do your idea because that's where the real work is. That's where, that's, where, that's where things happen. It's all about getting them done. So it's all about you, you, you've got the idea. You've just got to get out there and do it. And I'm, I'm assuming some of your ideas went well, some didn't. Is that accurate? <laughs> Well, that's pretty accurate. I kind of generally developed the 51% rule. Okay. And uh, I, I made a ton of mistakes. And if I could get them right 51% of the time, I figured I was going to be able to stay in business. Just, all I had to just, just do is get over that halfway market. And that's what I told employees, too, uh, that, hey, it's okay. You, you make mistakes. You learn from those mistakes, and we move on. Just try to get over the 51%, <laughs> and everything will be fine. Okay. That's great advice. Cliff? Quad, what do the terms vision, mission, and values mean to you? Well, a vision, a vision is, a, is a future state, something you can literally see. I think there's a reason that it's called vision. It's a brief description of a company's fundamental purpose. Uh, they answer the question, where do we want to go? And it can be almost impossible. It could be like an, a dream something you dream of, and in, in your current reality, you can never actually attain it. So it can be pretty far-fetched. And uh, it, it can really drive an organization. It can drive a person. And, it, and I've used visions all my life to create direction and purpose. And a mission is... Uh, well, a mission describes a fundamental purpose of the company. And it answers the question, why do we exist? What are we doing now? And what are we about? So, for example, the original Drive's vision was to be the preferred brand and worldwide leader in the markets we serve. So by using that term worldwide, it drove the company in a certain way, so to break through geographic boundaries. So that drove us to open up in more than 20 foreign countries. It, it caused us to spend money that you couldn't really justify in the short term because, because we had a higher purpose. And uh, our mission was to provide innovative drying solutions and the best drying equipment for our customers. So there's key words in there, innovative drying solutions. We're trying to be an innovator. We're trying to create new things to happen. And, uh, and we're trying to be the best at it. We're trying to create the best quality of equipment. Of course, those, those, uh, those tools changed over the years. They became modified, and they're probably different, far different today. Well, that... 
Uh, that ties into a text question here from a listener, too. So let me get to that first, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep going. He asked, um, what's the biggest improvement in the restoration industry? Is it the equipment or the education? Well, well it's, you know, over a 30-year period, both those things were pretty darned important. I mean, the, the education changed dramatically from, from a one-day seminar into hands-on training like at the Center for Advanced Restorative Drying and other training classes like uh, uh, Unsmokes and, and, uh, and other people from the industry. So that, that hands-on training or those more advanced seminars really, really made a huge difference. And uh, in the industry, but equipment was was uh, dramatically improved over the years, from just having an air mover and a little hydro sensor to all kinds of different moisture meters, different types of dehumidifiers, uh, uh, more distinctions, and different types of uh, air movers. So I think the equipment evolved pretty dramatically. I mean, it was huge. And when we brought out the first uh, trader-mounted desiccant dehumidifier in the world. Uh, we really did that to send a message that we were a serious manufacturer. We didn't know how many of those we'd sell, and we didn't know really what would happen with the industry. But that was uh, that technology, desiccant dehumidification, I think, became a huge uh, movement, the idea that we could dry large buildings with large pieces of equipment. I don't know if I lost track of your question there. No, Joe. no, that was, <laughs> I, I think that was, I mean, it sounds to me like they both have, improved dramatically and I don't know that you could p choose one over the other but um, obviously you've got to have the equipment to, to do the job and um, that has improved tremendously over the years. I have a question about um, the effect of the, what Cliff has termed here the Covey principles. Covey. Guess, uh, Covey Stephen Covey, Covey I believe yeah. that is. Covey principles. Um, what kind of effect did they have on your life and your business? Well Something happened in, in, I think it was 1994, where uh, uh, I terminated the sales manager. There was a lack of trust there. And uh, and I thought when I did that, I was just terminating the sales manager. And interestingly enough, the entire sales department walks out of the company within you know, a short period of time. And that really caught me off guard because I thought those people were loyal to, com to the company itself. Or I thought they were loyal to me as being the owner, the founder, and the president. But the reality was that wasn't the case at all. They were really loyal to the sales manager. And I realized, well, maybe, maybe I really wasn't that good of a leader. Maybe I really wasn't that competent as a manager. Maybe I didn't really have, wasn't really doing things for people that they wanted. And so um, I got turned on to uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Uh, principle-centered leadership, first things first. He wrote a number of books. He, he taught a number of training seminars. And for me, it just changed my life. It made me think about people in a whole new way to focus more energy on people, uh, to think about how I could serve others and not just serve our customers. I always thought, well, just serving the customers is the most important thing in the whole world. And if they're happy, they're going to buy our products and we're going to be happy and so on. But unless we have satisfied associates, and people that feel empowered and able to make a difference, uh, people that are able to contribute, uh, people that don't, you know, come to work in fear for their jobs, so many different aspects, uh, we're going to have a better company. And we spent, uh, well, I was directly engaged in developing the culture of the organization, working with people and implementing programs around associates until, until I retired. That was my main thrust. 
was about the people element in the company. Well, I shouldn't say the main thrust, because I also was responsible since the very beginning in the organization as the marketing person. That was my strength initially. It was really marketing. and uh, But later on, I focused more on mission, vision, values, uh, employee satisfaction, those kinds of things. You know, I think, can you expand into uh, telling the audience what management philosophies uh, that you found successful and capitalized on, you know, that might have been beyond uh, what you learned from Stephen Covey? Well, um, one thing is empowering. I think one of the, the most important thing, I think, to the average associate, or we actually didn't call people employees, so I'm using that term interchangeably, but but uh, somewhere around the mid-90s, we decided that people were associates, they weren't employees. We wanted to create a distinction that they were they were not just something that they thought they were. And one of the, the key words, I think, is empowerment. That's where we're actually allowing people to make decisions and fail. I mean, so many times the bosses who, who, who either know more or think they know more, or a combination of those two things, try to make all the decisions. And, and of course, that wears out a wears out the manager, that people just get tired, but it also disempowers uh, other people. And so I think we put tremendous ability and empowerment in the organization. It was a strong focus to to allow people to make decisions and to fail and to learn from those decisions and and to be able to be open to express that they made a mistake and what they learned from it, not to totally hide it, not, not that this always worked perfectly. Uh, another concept I think is sharing uh, sharing with people that the uh, willingness to really share with people and we put we put a profit sharing program into the organization it was tremendously successful it changed the whole face of the organization we had always had a gross revenue sharing back from the very early days we actually would take a percentage of our gross sales and then share that with the employees and it was total total company but one of the things I learned from that after doing that for something like 14 years was the company grew. I mean, we grew from something like $160,000 in gross sales to $50 million in gross sales in some 25 years. And certainly the company grew, and certainly that idea of sharing gross revenues with the employees caused us to grow, but the only person responsible for the profit was me. (laughs) And that became pretty difficult, and therefore we 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 struggled with profit. We didn't make a lot of profit. And... uh, but we sure grew like the Dickens, and uh, and then in the in the 90s we put a profit sharing program into place, and uh, quarterly we would share a substantial amount of money, and it had integrity. In other words, they knew that if the company we shared our financial information with all the employees that worked in the company, for example, and uh, they could they could see how we were doing, and uh, uh, and so every quarter they would get a check, a float, it was a floating scale as a percentage of their salary, how much they would get every quarter depending on the company's profitability as a percentage, then their percentage would be directly affected by that percentage. And uh, that program made me more money personally than anything I've ever done in my life. And it's interesting, I told other business people, they'll come to me and they'll start telling me their problems and I say, you know, why don't you share profits with your employees on a quarterly basis? And make it big, make it substantial, make it have integrity, don't manipulate it, make it real, and start sharing financial information and other kinds of information with your associates, your employees, and you'll make more money than you've ever made. And they just don't, most people don't believe it. They just can't go there. 
But honestly, I made more money in five years after implementing that program than, I, than I'd made in all the previous years combined. Yeah, it brings me to a question, Claude. Uh, you know, you talked about your lack of formal education. You know, why do you think you've been more successful in your business career than most people with MBAs from Ivy League schools? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question, and uh, I don't know that I've been more successful. I think there's a lot of a lot of successful business in America, and I think we have a lot of opportunities in this country to to uh, have a good business. And where the action is, as far as I'm concerned, is in business. So there's unlimited opportunity for anybody that, that cares to play. Uh, for me personally, I think just the fact that, uh, you know, I was motivated. Uh, initially, I was just hungry. I mean, I was just initially, you know, changed over the years, but initially just being hungry and not have it, having any support mechanism at all. You know, nobody really to turn to who could who could uh, support us in any way. I think uh, made a difference, and so I was just I was just hungry. And then later on, having a great vision made a difference. Uh, of course, hiring great people. You know, being able to hire, uh, motivate, and retain uh, great people plays a huge role. And that in the early '90s, that became such a focal point for me. Is how how do you do that? You know, how do you hire people? How do you how do you motivate people? How do you, how do you keep them there? And uh, you know, we, we introduced a lot of things to keep people there. We had the revenue sharing. We had uh, a guaranteed annual review process where there would be increases in, in wages and benefits. We did a 360 degree review where they would, where seven to ten people would interview each person. They would actually fill out forms that we designed in house to interview that person quantitatively. Not, not qualitatively, with a numerical system, anonymously, and that happened to everybody in the company, including myself. I got I got reviewed through that system. I went to an annual review like everybody else, but it was a 360 review. It had integrity. We instituted paid time off. We didn't we didn't have that back in those days. People had sick time. You know, big companies had sick time and they had vacation time. We just accumulated hours per month that they worked, and they owned those hours. They could use them for whatever. And the reason we did that, quite frankly, we'd have, we did have sick time a little bit in the beginning, and, and I'd, somebody would call in sick, and then you'd go to the grocery store, you'd see them at the grocery store, they didn't look all that sick. <laughs> and I thought, well, that doesn't have integrity. You know, why are we making people lie so they can go to the grocery store, take their spouse to the doctor, or, or whatever it is, take their son to the baseball game, you know, whatever it is. Why do they have to lie to do that and say that they're sick? And so we just created this system called paid time off and now that's pretty common I think. Uh, we implemented annual employee satisfaction surveys that were anonymous. We spent tons of time trying to understand what do our people like about working here? What don't they like about working here? What can we do to enhance it? We put in medical insurance programs back when that wasn't that common. Having a company-wide mission, vision, values. So that actually the original mission and vision of the organization was created through teams within the whole company. So I don't, I don't remember how many people were there at that time, maybe 60 or 70 people. And I actually led the drive, but I didn't manipulate the outcome, but led the drive to create a, a mission and vision for the organization. So when that was completed, and you can't say that everybody bought in, but most of the people, I think, bought into the concept. This is what we were about, and they were part of that dialogue. They created it. So we took production people, and this wasn't just management. It was everybody. That goes back to the empowerment. 
we had Cubby training. Uh, Pete Consigli, who uh, I had Cubby training, and, and Pete Consigli went to specialized Cubby training just so he could bring it back to the organization. Everybody in the company got Cubby training. We also had work-life training, which is another type of life training. And Cubby training and work-life training aren't just for the company. You know, you say, well, companies do training. They want everybody to take a class in Microsoft Excel so they can use Excel better at work. But we taught life lessons or life training so that they could apply these at work and they could apply them at home. It could change people's lives a lot of times. Um, so we just kept putting things in place that made it a better, a better place to work. That's what we tried to do. And uh, you, know, you never really get there. You never completely get there, but that's one of some of the things that we that we worked at anyway. Okay, Claude, it's what we call halftime here. We've got to thank our sponsors quickly, and then we're going to bring someone in to say hello, and then we'll come back to the interview. So please hang on with us for just a moment. Okay, Joe. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Okay, let's bring Claude back on the line here. We've also got a, a friend and a former associate, I guess, of Claude's here to say hello. Uh, you want to say hello, Pete? Hey, Claude. How you doing? It was great listening to the interview. It was kind of like uh, so far, I'm looking forward to listening to part two, but it was a little little bit of a walk down memory lane when you were talking about uh, the introduction of the desiccant dehumidifiers, the easy blocks, uh, seven habits, and the work-life training. And, um, you know, uh, anyway, uh, I'm kind of enjoying the interview. I'm glad that uh, they, that you agreed to do it. I think uh, it's kind of it's a good thing. Well, that's good, good fun. Nice to have you online here. And, Pete, we thank you for coming in. I also want to uh, just pass along uh, for Claude a, a text we got that uh, you're an inspiration and a model to many in the restor- restorative drying industry. Thanks. And they miss seeing your face in industry events. So I uh, wanted to pass that along to you, Claude, from one of our listeners here. Okay. Yeah, thanks. That's very kind. And uh, never well, know, maybe one of these days I'll be popping in again. All right. Well, I, d- I definitely second that emotion, uh, whoever that listener was. I uh Maybe one little thing. One of the things that Claude gave, you know, turned me on to the Covey stuff, which was very influential in my life. And actually, him and myself years ago in the '90s went to the three-day uh, Covey training. And I remember it was uh, down in the Phoenix in Scottsdale. And uh, the other thing was really the positioning book, uh, Recent Trout. It's been very influential, and I think was probably critical in, you know, the, the branding and the development of uh, a dry and. Um, since I'm talking about the founding fathers, you know, of restoration, uh, the, the interviewer, Mr. Zlotnick, uh, 
you know, has his own mark. One day maybe someone will actually have to interview him. You know, you've interviewed Lloyd, you've interviewed Marty, now Claude, and, uh, and you know, Cliff's really the fourth of the Founding Fathers of Restoration from my viewpoint. And one day somebody probably needs to in- interview him as a Founding Father of Restoration, and he takes off his Z-Man hat. But uh, the book that Cliff turned me on to that was, you know, from a business standpoint and a life standpoint, was uh, was the Built to Last, which was the predecessor to Good to Great, which has had a big influence in the industry too. So, uh, you know, I thank those those guys for that. So, uh, anyway, uh, nice chatting with you, Claude, and uh, I look forward to listening to the rest of the interview. Thanks, Joe, for uh, having me call in. All right, Pete, thanks for joining us, Cliff. Okay, yeah, back to the interview, Claude. You know, you were very candid uh, about. Uh, you know, the financial struggles that you had, you know, in life and, and in starting the business. Uh, is it true that you had a fear of public speaking, and how did you overcome that? <laughs> well, yeah, the the story I sometimes have told, and not very often, is is uh, when the motivators asked me to travel the United States, and we were putting on these little three-day uh, mini-conventions where carpet cleaners are in the United States, and I was supposed to speak 45 minutes on water damage restoration. And I know this was, uh, there was before that, there was the innovators, and then that had kind of gone quiet, I guess, and then this motivators group started. And anyway, we were traveling around. As part of that, uh, they said, well, Claude, uh, we want you to do a 45-minute talk. And and I was I was so scared of public speaking. I mean, I could talk to Mrs. Jones in the living room, and I could talk up a story because I was real proud of my carpet cleaning and my carpet cleaning business. And and if Mr. Jones was there and Mrs. Jones was there, I could talk to both of them. But my goodness, if the neighbor came over, there was three people. I was I was done in, and uh, and so uh, I think I'm the only person that ever dropped out of Toastmasters. I I went two meetings and uh, uh, just couldn't talk. There was five people at the table and couldn't open my mouth. And so yeah, I'm about as as, a, as afraid of public speaking as anybody in the can be. And uh, But, you know, when I got to the motivators, I went through a series of issues, and it was a struggle for me, but uh, I just did what I felt I had to do. Eventually, I ended up doing what I felt I had to do to, uh, to build my business and to help people, and and those were the things that drove me, and, and I learned to do some public speaking. And then when I went out, I started teaching schools, and at first it was just a one-day school, and then we created the advanced training, and that was a two-day school. and. And then I was start doing the circuit like uh, others in the industry, like you, Cliff, uh, where we were asked to speak at a trade show. And I did. Uh, I spoke at all the different trade shows uh, that were going on at that time. And kind of the bottom line answer, though, is is, is I, I still don't. I never got over it. I'm still not over it. I still feel very uncomfortable speaking in front of people. And uh, I think I was more comfortable when I had to do it. So, you know, in my company, I had, we had a monthly company meeting, a whole company meeting, and and I and I and I had to say something to people, and uh, so I did. And so I always just did what I had to do to try to do the right thing and and to build a business and help people. And uh, and but to this day, and even being on the on this uh, conversation is pretty uncomfortable for me. Well, we appreciate you joining us for it. Um, and I've got a quick one. That there's a couple questions here. I want to make sure we get to. First of all, have you used any business consultants um, during your time as you know owner of Dryes? And what effect did they have on your business? Well, that's an interesting question because it was my philosophy. And you know, a business changes, and 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 the leaders change, and your life changes. As you know, Joe, as we as, as the years go by, and sometimes we're not the same people that we were 20 years ago. And, uh, 
but initially, my philosophy was very clear throughout the company. In the first uh, 12, 14 years of that company, I was very clear, we do everything here. We're going to create our own marketing department. We're going to create our own engineering. We're going to create our own production. We're going to make our own products. We're going to do... We're going to do. We're going to do our own finance and accounting. We're going to do our own management. We're going to develop our own philosophies. So on. We were. We built it in house. We did. We did not use consultants. And the reason was is trying to get good value. We're just trying to trying to get good value. We just couldn't see at that time where you pay somebody fifty dollars an hour or eighty dollars an hour or whatever it was. And uh, I'd rather hire a, a person, and and have them be part of the organization. But. But at the end of the day, consultants did make a big difference to Dry's products, and the, the the first consultant really we ever really hired was Dick Gillespie, and he came in with work like work life systems, which was a philosophy of work and life, and how people work together. and And uh, there were tremendous amount of tools that were life changing tools. In that philosophy, and Dick came in as a consultant did a complete management review. They interviewed literally every single person in the company at that time. There might have been about fifty or sixty people, and spent uh, dozens of hours getting an understand of wh- who we were, what we were good at, and where our pitfalls were. And uh, that really paid off. And at the time, it was shocking. You know, I think he wanted a thousand dollars a day, and and I think I got, I think he ended up working for six hundred, whatever, but. <laughs> as a consultant, and it made a tremendous difference. It opened my eyes in terms of a whole new viewpoint uh, perspective on the world and how business works, and uh, and that was that was big for us. And then Dick Gillespie, later on, I mean, the years went by, and he was working as a consultant. He'd come in every so often to do some consulting, but later on, Dick was hired as a general manager. He was traveling all the United States. He was away from his family. And he's a family person, and I made him an offer. I said, "Why don't you just come in and and be the general manager, and you can apply those skills right here." And he jumped at the chance. He really, really thought to be an opportunity. Put his put his stuff into practice in a real company that was trying to be a world class company. And uh, eventually, he became he was the general became the general manager. He became the VP, and eventually became the president of the organization. And we implemented work life systems throughout the entire organization as a founding kind of the foundation of the culture that we were developing consciously. We consciously developed a culture within the organization. And uh, so that was the biggest consultant. And I know we hired other consultants. Uh, uh, you know, we'd hire legal consultants at some at some point. We're hiring some of those kinds of people. We were hiring some design consultants in our initial, when we got into rotational molding uh, in a heavy way. And designing rotationally molded dehumidifiers never been done before. I think we hired some design people, specialists, and, and uh, maybe a few times we had to hire outside engineers or engineering consultants. But overall, Prize was pretty self-contained in terms of our skill sets. Well, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the list of quest- questions Cliff put together, and you just you brought up bringing in someone to discuss legal issues, and that, that led me to a question I've wanted to ask anyway. When you were running Dry's, did you feel like patenting or the firm's intellectual property was important? Well, initially, you know, people, when we came out with Easy Blocks, everybody, uh, everybody loved to provide advice, and people said we should patent our Easy Blocks. These were, these were little foam blocks that are two inches by two inches by one inch, you know, and they're made out of high-density poly, 
polystyrene, and uh, of course everybody has ideas, but uh, of course uh, we didn't even to look at patenting. And then when we made improvements to the air mover, we, we originated the first molded fiberglass air mover in the world, and people said the same thing. They said you should patent it. And at that time, literally back then in 1984, I mean, I just didn't have $2,000 to spare. I just didn't think that that would be, I mean, I had to put the money where I thought it was going to do the most good. And uh, I didn't, and somebody at the time said it was a couple thousand dollars to get a patent, and that kind of ended that. But I did do some reading. I mean, I personally studied the issues of patents and also learned that the limited nature of patents, I mean, they're really of limited value many times, and sometimes even if you have a great patent, it becomes down to who's got the deeper checkbook, because you can you can just battle it out in court for years, and if somebody has more money than the other party, you just you just wear them down. And so over the years, we we did get two or three or four patents, and and uh, but it wasn't a priority. And and in a way, innovation. You know, we love to use the term innovation, but. A lot of the technology that we use in restoration is, is not new technology. It's, we take technology from another industry and we convert it or we modify it or we, we, we make it right for restoration. But it already exists. The dehumidifier existed before dries. And uh, hot gas bypass systems weren't invented by dries. We merely took that technology and brought them over to the dehumidifiers. And putting a pump on a dehumidifier had never been done in the world, but still, how could you patent a dehumidifier with a pump? I don't think it would have held, held water. So, no, what we consciously said, look, the game isn't legal. The game of serving customers isn't about patents. The game of serving customers is about serving customers. How do you serve customers? That's where you're going to, that's where you're going to get market share. And, uh, the game, the game is marketing. The game is communication. So, if you, if you looked at our expenditures for legal work, it'd be, I don't know, it would be almost be nothing. I mean, one hundredth of a percent. And if you look at our budget for marketing in those early days, it could have been five percent or ten, you know, five to ten percent of our annual sales, which would have, would have included training as well. So, no, we didn't. I'm, I never was a big believer in patents. I don't. Uh, people busted our patents, and, and uh, inadvertently, we busted other people's patents. I mean, it's just, it just didn't work very well. Claude, you know, you said that your company was second to enter with air moving type equipment. What tactics did Dries use to uh, overcome competition and dominate the market? Well, Lloyd had the first ported dryer, and and uh, and you know, we made a metal dryer, and I couldn't sell them. Quite frankly, we direct mailed every carpet cleaner in the United States. That flyer with our uh, with our with our hydro dryer one. I think we sold three. In other words, we didn't have a strategy that was going to work in terms of just having a, a product for us. And uh, uh, but now that I said that, it wasn't about the product. It wasn't a year after that. Then we came out with the first fiberglass hand laid fiberglass vinyl ester, you know, resin turbo dryer. And of course, that was product innovation, and so that helped us. But uh, let's see, what strategies do we use? Well, one strategy, you might call it a strategy, is when I decided that my mission personally was to help carpet cleaners survive the winter. When I was buying those mailing lists, let me backtrack for a moment. I was buying this mailing list from a mailing list house and mailing all the carpet cleaners across the United States. 
And uh, one time we made the mistake of sending it out return postage guaranteed. We got 22% of those mailings back. It was unbelievable what that cost me at the time. It was a big mistake. But I, I felt at that time that 22% of the industry was going broke every year. And I know that's an oversimplification, but that, that was the level of my marketing understanding back then. And I said, you know, I don't want carpet cleaners to go broke. I'm a carpet cleaner, and I'm proud of the industry. There's no reason that these guys should be going broke. So our mission became, my mission and the company's mission, even though it only had a couple of people in it, was we were going to help carpet cleaners survive the winter season by helping them get into water damage restoration. And so we had a higher purpose than just selling an air mover. And I think that made a huge difference in the way we approached our support for the industry. So, for example, uh, the only other school on water damage restoration out there was 250 bucks. It was a one-day class. And we came out and said, we want to help everybody. How can we do that? Well, let's have a class for $98. So you might say that's a strategy. We had, within six months, we had the most, well, let's say training school in the United States. We traveled all the United States doing these one-day classes for 98 bucks. I would have anywhere from 30 to 65 people in a class. And Dreyse became the largest trainer in the world at water damage restoration because we offered a great value. And not only was it low price, but actually I think that our classes were very high quality. We were innovative in our training. Well, but uh, strategies, uh, heavy direct mail marketing, I mean, we did tons of direct mail. We did national from the word go. Um, product innovation. I mean, we were the first company to put a fiberglass air mover. We were also the first company to use a, a permit split capacitor motor, the first company to use a switch, first, the first company to uh, uh, use an energy-efficient rotary compressor. I mean, the, the list of firsts goes on uh, extensively in terms of uh, product innovation. Uh, we're the first company to use a third horsepower and half horsepower motors. We're the first company to get UL and CSA certification a safety standard. At that time, nobody in the industry, I don't even know today really how many companies have UL or CSA certification electrical safety. First rotationally molded dehumidifier in the world. First company to install a pump and a dehumidifier in the world. First, first company to use epoxy powder coated, coated metal materials in the industry that I knew of. Uh, first dehumidifiers in America with hot gas bypass that allowed them to work into colder temperatures. Uh, first uh, distribution of non-penetrating moisture meters in water restoration. First trader-mounted self-contained mobile desk and dehumidifier, I think, in the world. So these first came out of our desire to obviously grow the business, but also in, in order to, uh, uh, to help our customers. Claude, are, are you surprised there's still a uh good demand for air movers and other drying equipment? <laughs> well, that's interesting because, and I don't know what year it was, but I think it had to have been in the mid, and Pete would probably remember, he, he's got a sharp mind for these kind of dates, but somewhere <laughs> in the mid-90s, I was at a national distributors meeting, and we would put on these national distributor meetings, and um, and I got personally got up in front of all the distributors that we had. There must have been 50 or 60 of them there anyway. And I said, you know, air movers, it's saturated. Your, your air mover sales, your turbo dryer sales are going to start to go way down. We've put over 50,000 turbo dryers in the country, and it just can't keep growing. And you need to focus your energy on selling dehumidifiers. And, of course, since that time, dries has sold 
I don't know how many, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of turbo drivers. So was I surprised? Yeah, I'm, I'm still surprised. <laughs> <laughs> because these things don't wear out. I mean, guys show me these dryers they're running from, you know, from from 1984, and I'm going, hey, throw that thing away. Haven't you made enough money with that thing? <laughs> you know, like, get a new one. <laughs> and uh, and so, well, they do wear out a little bit, but but overall, they can they can make money for people 10 or 15 years. And, of course, the whole thing that no one really understood about Dries and the reason we were off the radar, because we were just a little company, and, you know, there were really big companies around, like Hydromaster and ProChem and ChemSpec and... These were companies that were like four, five, six million dollars a year when Dries was, you know, one point two million dollars. We were kind of off the radar. What nobody really understood is that carpet cleaner who had to save money, just like me, to buy two turbo dryers, had to save up the money. Then he'd go out and do that person go out and do water damage, and they make so much money because these things were charged by the day, you know, fifteen, twenty dollars per day per dryer. And they'd be on a job three, four, five, six days. They they would pay for themselves in two or three jobs. That guy would come back then the next year. He'd start marketing his water damage restoration service, come back and buy ten more. And lo and behold, that same guy would come back, and you know this well, Cliff. I mean, he'd come back the next year and he'd buy 20. He'd come back the next year and buy 30 more and 20 dehumidifiers. I mean, this just went on for, continues to this day, I guess, the two, three decades where... Joe's carpet cleaning became, you know, advanced restoration services, and Joe started off with two turbo dryers. And advanced restoration today, you walk into a shop and he's got 200 turbo dryers and 50 dehumidifiers, and and on and on and on, all this other equipment. Nobody knew that. I mean, nobody quite knew that, including us. You know, I think one of the good things that that's helped, uh, you know, drives this business. Uh, and, and competitive firms is that the restoration industry oftentimes is a jealous industry and they're envious of their competitors and they will not rent or cooperate or work with their competitors. So, you know, in, in the end, the companies such as Dry's prospered because every, everyone's garage and warehouse was filled with equipment and there's only so many jobs to go around. So I, I don't think anyone's really sorted that out yet, but uh, I think it's still there. Um, I guess um, I'd like to ask you, in an industry where you worked very, very hard and prospered, um, I'd like to know in what ways you've tried to give back to that industry. Well, you know, the, the quick answer is, is, is all the time I was in the industry, Cliff, I felt Real or not, but in my own mind, the story I created was that I was helping people. And so I always felt, you know, I, you know, of course we counted the money and we paid attention to the money. But the high, there was always a higher purpose, Keep going way back to 1981, where we said we want to help carpet cleaners survive the winter. So we had a higher purpose. So I never felt like I wasn't serving the industry. And I, I'll bet you feel the same way. I mean, we're, we're there to serve. We're there to make some money and build a business, but we're there to serve others. And without that, I, I think it's very difficult to build a world-class business without a higher purpose. And I think it's the same for our employees and our people. Um, I forgot your question. Would you repeat that? Well, no. I, no, I, I just think that publicly, you know, I just wanted to acknowledge some of the things that I know that you've done. I know that you've underwritten uh, scientific research for the industry. I, I know that you've... 
uh, financially uh, done an endowment uh, at Purdue. And, uh, you know, I think those are things that oftentimes people don't know about and uh, people don't appreciate. But, um, you know, it's, yeah. uh, there, there's, there's things that oftentimes uh, don't go notice. Claude, we've got yeah. a, a text question here from a listener. Are, are you pleased with the recent evolution in the drying industry? Uh, for instance, the focus on heat. Um, they call them silver bullet tools. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the, the truth is, is really since, since I sold out in 2006, and I think heat was just really starting to be talked about in the last six or eight years, uh, I have not followed the technology, and uh, I'm not. I'm not engaged in dries. I don't. I don't visit dries. Uh, and there's completely new management there, and so I don't really. I don't really keep up with what's going on with heat. And uh, I think whatever tools work, work. I. I think we have to be careful to really test equipment, to really test techniques. And and uh, not only at the company level, but but at the individual level, first not doing doing it in the field, and take that extra time to evaluate uh, our own processes on an ongoing basis, or until we're absolutely comfortable that the technique that we're using is working. I personally would take anybody's word that anything works without really testing it. And sometimes we're so busy that we do it but we don't we don't spend that extra time to evaluate how did it work how well did it work uh, would i do it that way again would i change something what next job i see like this maybe i would do it differently just to experiment to become to become little scientists in our own right uh, so i don't know that much about heat if it heat obviously there's three principles of drying right it's, it's airflow uh, temperature and uh, humidity and those are the three things that affect drying our hair those are the three things that affect drying grain. Those are the three things that affect drying wood or floors or carpets. And so the sci that basic science stays the same. And so heat heat is on par in terms of its technical uh, componentry. Now, how it actually works in the home, I mean, I think there's some concerns. You start heating up wet wood and get it too hot, too fast, you know, you can create some issues. And, and so I think people have to be careful. But I'm just not technically... Uh, but this new concept of using a lot of heat, I'm not up on that. Claude, we've got to go to, to our roundup here. So Can you stay on. for an extra minute or, or two? We might run over a couple minutes. I want to warn the listeners and make sure you're still available. I can stay as long as you want. All right, great. Thanks. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Right. This is where we go back around one more time. I'm, I'm going to start, and then we're going to bring Dr. Dieter in to see if he's got any comments or questions, uh, and then uh, we'll bring Pete back on, say hello to Pete, see if he has a comment or question, and let fin uh, Cliff finish things up. And, and do you want me to interject anything during this next phase? Please absolutely. 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 Yeah, the questions and comments are primarily directed to you. It's the roundup. Uh, now you, you were in the cleaning and restoration business, you know, early on when a good idea was enough to you know to be the foundation of a business 
Do you still feel there's fertile ground for successful new businesses to start in the cleaning and restoration industry? And, and what advice would you give someone that thinks they have a great idea or if you want to go off into just someone that wants to do cleaning and restoration, what advice would you give them? Wow. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. I, first of all, I'm not, real, I'm not real close to the industry, as I said, so I, I'm not really in the field. I don't know what it's like to start a business today in terms of, uh, you know, the way I did in 1980. But my assumption and my belief about business in general, it's, it's huge. And, and I think there's lots of opportunities for people that want to be a business. And, uh, and it's the place to be. And uh, basically my advice, I guess, if I could just take it down to one thing would be to, to, to create a bigger purpose, to create a higher purpose, to try to think how we're serving people and uh, make it bigger than our, than our own needs. Because if it's just about us, if it's just about making a buck, if it's just about serving ourselves, that business, well, I think will honestly have a limitation to how far it can go. And when we serve others and we have a greater purpose than ourselves and we're serving humanity, and we're paying attention to the finances and the money, then 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 we can really achieve some some great things. All right, I'll take that to heart. Let's get to uh, Doctor Wild, Doctor Dietrich Wild. Do you have any quick questions or comments? Well, no. Excuse me. I don't have really any. You know, this is not my area of expertise. I'm the technical guy with the numbers and all of that. But I think we learned again. Uh, yeah, many hints uh, about starting your business, and it is not always going to be smooth. I went through it. He went through it. I know Joe went through it, and you just got to stick to it. You got to keep your eyes and ears open and see of how you can improve, and we heard that over and over again, and I think that is wonderful. Don't throw in the towel. I said, hey, where did I screw up? Where can I do better? And that is exactly what we heard. As I said, on the technical thing, you know, I like, I, uh, on one hand, I hate plastics. On the other one, I, uh, on the other hand, I like plastics. Uh, when I handle water, I like to have some plastic around rather than steel, which usually rusts on me. And um, so, but you know, I, I think we learned that, that you got to stick to it and you make a couple that nobody is perfect. We make a couple of mistakes and mistakes are no mistakes. If you learn from them, Oh, that sounded good. There you go. <laughs> All right, Dieter. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Let's see if uh, Pete Consigli's got anything he'd like to add. Pete, any final comments or questions? Yeah, I, I got a couple things. I'm, I'm glad that Cliff brought up uh, a lot of the stuff that Claude, maybe wouldn't mention, and I know he wouldn't, he'd be a little embarrassed about it, a lot that he's given back to the industry, from the industry that he's profited from in these endowments with Purdue. He's made a substantial donation to the Legacy Fund at RAA, too. And I think one of the things that Claude has done over the years, and Cliff has, too, and Lloyd, really, and, of course, Marty, they not only do they put their time and obviously, to build their business, which was the commercial end, but they put a lot of selfless volunteer time into the, uh, the associations, into the industry, the old ASCR, RAA, now, of course, IICRC and the lot. And, you know, they, I think they probably got a lot of knocks that people gave them saying, well, it's just kind of self-serving and they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're getting a lot of benefit. Well, you know what? I knew them well enough to know to say that they, their motives were really pure. They recognized that they were going to get benefit for their companies, but that really wasn't the primary motivator that they went in there. They really went in to help, you know, uh, 
raise the level of education and, and, and I think help the industry. And I think that was a good thing. You know, Claude served in the early 90s back in the day on the, the advisory board for the associate members. And uh, I think gave a lot of valuable input that ultimately led to, you know, to the, the creation of the Water Loss Institute that Cliff was involved with. And I think that, that helped move the industry to the next level. And I guess the only final comment I want to say, and I don't think I ever actually told Claude this, but the fact that this whole issue came up about the heat, you know, Charlie Cressy, which I'm sure many of your listeners know, you know, uh, uh, who kind of brought heat to the industry, per se, with his water out, and then a lot of other companies have kind of entered that market. I was having a conversation at, a, at an industry event several years ago, and Charlie made a comment to me, and I don't know whether this, whether he knew and realized my, my relationship that went back with Dryes and Claude or not, but he said, you know, Pete, he says, I don't know this guy, Claude Blackburn, but I got to tell you, I owe him a great debt of gratitude, and maybe I'm Charlie, those weren't his exact words, but that was the spirit of his words. And I say, well, why is that, Charlie? He said, because, you know, if it wasn't for a guy like Claude and the concepts and the ideas that he brought, and, of course, Charlie probably didn't realize that was an extension of Lloyd, he said there would have really probably not been the opportunity for him to do what he did. And um, I, I said, you know, Charlie, I appreciate that you actually said that, and, uh, and I think Claude would appreciate it, too. So uh, great interview, guys. All right. Thanks, Thanks Pete. And Cliff, we're going to yeah. let you wrap it up unless yeah. uh, Claude wants to add anything. Well, I was going to ask him, uh, Claude, is there anything that you would like to add or any final comments uh, that you'd like to make? Well, not that I can think of. I just appreciate the opportunity to uh, spend a time with uh, you, Cliff, and Joe, and having Pete on the line and, uh, and have an opportunity to share some of my stories. You know, I, I think it's very important. A lot of times people just are interested in technical uh, information, and uh, you know, I think the business aspects, particularly these personal stories and, uh, you know, trying to uh, keep track of history and record history, I, I, I think is, uh, is very important. So, uh, you know, my hat's off to you. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do the interview. Uh, you know, before I go, I'd like to thank again Claude Blackburn for being our guest today, my co-host Joe Hughes, environmental Ann Koalecki, our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.